You can open your Bibles with me. We're in 2 Thessalonians. And it's our last sermon in this series. If you now have a copy of God's Word, uh, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can open that up to page 990, and you'll find yourself in the text with us this morning. Now, after uh, 2 Thessalonians, we're going back into the book of Genesis. Uh, so we're going to finish that one out. I liked this little letter. It was four sermons. I could get through the book, and it was done. Uh, Genesis has proved to be a lot more sermons than that, so uh, we're going to get into the story of Joseph, and if you haven't uh, followed that story, it's an incredible story. Uh, We began our journey in Genesis in a series called Unglued. We saw how when God created everything, that he imbued this world with purpose, but then it became unglued with sin, and then we moved into the life of Abraham and saw God's unconventional promises unfolding through Abraham's life. And then we got into uh, Jacob, right? And we noted that Jacob was kind of like an everyman, right? And God was unfinished with him. God worked through Jacob's life to uh, bring about his purposes and to shape and mold the man. Now we're coming to Joseph and uh, we're going to call that series Unhindered. Unhindered. Unhindered, that's right. So uh, we'll, we'll explain that more when we get there. So come back, listen to it. Now I know that uh, you probably have seen the bumper stickers and maybe you've jokingly agreed with the philosophy of them. I love this particular one. Have you seen the one that says, work fascinates me, I can sit and watch it for hours? Or uh, what about the the bumper sticker that says this, and maybe you've said your amens to it, the worst day of fishing is better than the best day of working. Or after this sermon, um, or this one, think of this one, okay? I like this one. Hard work may not kill me, but why take a chance? So I have the feeling that after we go through all of this, uh, this morning, that some of you are going to be going to your local Bradford's Ace Hardware store in Hyannis and buying yourself a scraper to take off a couple of those bumper stickers should it occupy a space in your car. Did you know, did you know that there's actually a, a competition for competitive couch potatoing? I found this really interesting in the Chicago Tribune article titled, You Really Have to Sit Down for This. Uh, Chris McNamara uh, told the story of Jeff Miller, who at the time of the article had just won his third competition that involved nothing more than sitting in a lazy chair and watching television for hours on end. Now, Miller explained the key to his success. It's all about determination. And uh, his girlfriend, who was very proud of him, said this. He is driven in everything he does, which I thought was probably one of the more ironic statements that I've read in a while. Uh, It it was quite a feat, though. He uh, displayed incredible inertia and listlessly viewing TV for 72 sleepless hours. Brian Hanover of ESPN said this, most people have no idea what it takes to win. They don't understand the endurance it takes to stay awake and control bodily issues. Jeff is uniquely qualified. He's an expert. An expert at what? Doing nothing. That's right. Well, these couch potato Olympics uh, take things to the level of absurdity. Uh, (laughs) It is the type of sport that could only arise in a culture that has started to devalue work, to downgrade work. Work, you've heard it said like this before, 
is something that you do so that you can really do what you really wish you could be doing, right? And uh, when people take a view of work like that, there's a lot of emotions that come with uh, that mindset into our work. You hear of people dealing with despondency, joylessness, complaining, discontentedness, laziness, passivity, corner-cutting, and who hasn't had a case of the Monday blues? It was no different in uh, Thessalonica in Paul's day. The Greek mindset viewed work in this way. They despised it. They despised manual labor. They were just, uh, there were just certain jobs that no good Greek would do. And uh, hey, if you could get out of work altogether, all the better, right? Doesn't sound too far off from 2019 America for some people. So in the mindset of this, Paul comes with a little bit of an apostolic rod. He has two main messages. One is for the individual who has fallen into the stupor of slothfulness. And the other message is for the community who is enabling it. To the individual, he says, and it's been the main message of this series, get back to work, right? Paul never disassociates or divorces theology from life. And so these Thessalonian believers had come to believe that Jesus had returned and those who really didn't want to work, they said to themselves, well, hey, uh, this is a good reason for me not to get back to work. You know, we have this incredible ability, right, of making the Bible say what we really want the Bible to say, right? That's what they were doing here. And to the church... Paul says this, treat one another like the truth matters. Conduct your relationships in the church, the way that you converse one another, the way that you relate like the truth matters. So let's look at this passage and we'll see these messages unfold together. It begins in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. The text says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Now, what does the Bible teach about your Monday through Friday 
9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever crazy hours you work. Some of you work through the night, which I don't understand how you do that. What does the Bible have to say about your job? In 2 Thessalonians 3.6, we get the message, a message that is consistent with the overall biblical understanding of work. He says to them, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So the idea is that there is a biblical message, right? A tradition about work. And that message begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 in the Bible. The biblical vision of work looks like this. God created work. God values work. God himself is a worker. And God created us in his image, which means he created us to be workers. So you can see now with this theological perspective why any form of downgrading work, devaluing work, avoiding work would be a problem. The word that uh, Paul uses is the word idleness in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. To be idle, uh, we tend to think of it as being lazy, but those are, that's not exactly what Paul's getting at here. It actually envisions, it's a military term, and it envisions a soldier who is in their night post, and they have abandoned their duty, and they've left the camp susceptible to an invader attack. So that's the idea here. Idle doesn't mean lazy. It describes a dereliction of duty. Uh, In their wonderful little book called The Gospel at Work, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert divine idleness in this way. They say being idle does not necessarily mean inactivity, a lack of productivity. It can be an inactivity of heart, an inability or unwillingness to see or embrace God's purposes in the work he's given you to do. Well, I'm sure that this is not just a problem for people who were living and working 2,000 years ago. I imagine that idleness still kind of creeps into our lives today. And uh, these, same three, these same authors identify three ways that idleness can creep into our world. One of the things that they note is that we can view work as a necessary evil. So this is that mindset that says, I check out of work because I'd rather be somewhere else. There's another place I'd rather be. I walk into the office or the job site or the place of work and I leave my heart checked in at the door. And then I kind of sluggishly go about my day unenthusiastically, unenergetically, going about my work. Well, the Bible does not want us to pursue work in that way. The Bible wants you to bring your heart into the job. Some of us say to ourselves, I work so I can pursue my real passion, sailing, golf, photography, travel, whatever it is. I got to tell you, why make 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours of your week a drudgery by not applying your heart and being passionate about that as well. We're meant to come into work in that way. Uh, The two authors, Traeger and Gilbert, share this. They say, however menial, however boring, however unmatched to our interests our jobs are, one of the key ways in which God matures us as Christians is our work 
and it brings him much glory when we go about it. You know, God's using your work. He's using your work to shape and mold you. He's using it to bring about human flourishing. He's glorified as he looks upon the food service industry, the customer service representative, the lawyer, the doctor, going about their task. Another way that idleness can creep in is that we can grow overly frustrated with our work. This is the mindset that says, I check out because I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I feel hurt by my job. Now, who hasn't had a moment where they were getting ready to go to work and just absolutely dreaded the thought of it? Most of us have experienced that at some point. And there can be all kinds of different reasons why that might happen. It might be uh, that your boss has been harsh with you recently. It might be that you are struggling with a coworker. It might be that when you walk into that uh, work setting, you feel like your company doesn't value what you do. I've got to tell you, friends, the Bible has certain remedies when we're feeling frustrated. The first is this. You can take your frustration to God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Uh, And that's true to anxiety. It's true to frustration. It's true to any kind of emotional feeling that I'm having. I can bring it to him. The second thing is that when I'm in my place of work, Colossians 3.23 says, Work as unto who? The Lord. You know what that means? You're not working for your boss. You're working for Jesus. If you walk into the place of work and say, I'm going to give this place low energy because they don't value you, well, guess what? You're missing the point. God is going to value you. He sees what you're doing. He takes great delight in it. And he wants you to apply the best of your energy to what you're doing. The third tendency We might grow idle because we have compartmentalized our life. Uh, Yesterday at our Activate Bible study, we watched a video on work, and the teacher talked about this idea of many of us have created houses for ourselves where there's a bunch of different rooms that are not interconnected in any way whatsoever. Uh, I kind of compartmentalize my life. There's God time, there's my time, there's family time, there's relational time. Uh, and, and all of these different rooms have no interconnectivity, no doors leading into the other room, no windows that peer into the other room. So I'm not necessarily the same person at work as I am at church as I am in my home situation. Well, think about this in terms of the delegation of your time. If I compartmentalize my life and there is God's time. Guess how much of your time God gets? About two or three percent, and that's if you're going to church every Sunday and you're doing your devotions, right? Does God want three percent of my time? No, the Bible says he wants a hundred. Well, how do I give God 100 percent of my time? Paul gives us the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 10:31. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. You see, when I pursue life in that way, it's like taking a sledgehammer to all of those walls of the compartmentalized life and opening up the house and putting God in the center and saying, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to glorify God. 
So I can glorify God at work. I can glorify him at home when I'm reading stories to the kids. I can glorify him on the golf course. I can glorify him in my friendships. So this is the Bible's perspective on work. Work is good. We shouldn't devalue work. You should work for Christ. But Paul's not the type of teacher who just tells you to do something. He is the type that does not say, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, That doesn't tend to work, does it, when you're trying to communicate a message? Look at what he says in the next part of the uh, scripture, 7 through 9. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. The apostle here in this passage presents to us a perfect balance between authority and stature. Authority is that positional respect that you receive because of your title. He is an apostle. And you see there in verse 6 that he says, we command you. That's a strong term. Uh, That carries the idea of a general walking into a setting with a bunch of troops. And he says, get in line. And guess what they do? They get in line because he's the general. But Paul doesn't ground his authority in himself. He says, in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes as high up the chain of command as he can. He's saying this in his name. But he doesn't just lead out of authority. He also applies stature. While authority is something you possess because of your position, stature is something you earn because you're obeying the word of God in the sight of others. Do you see that? Paul knows that people will not be motivated by leaders who have a disconnect between authority and stature. We are persuaded, we're motivated, we're challenged to live by leaders who live out the ideals that they're challenging us to aspire to be. Now, you can think of it like this. Let's make this very practical and personal. As a father, I have an authority over my children. It's a God-given task. It's an entrustment. There's a season of my children's life where I have been tasked with this authority, and it's their responsibility to obey me. However, think about this. Will my children adopt my values if there's a disconnect between my authority in the home and my stature. Essentially, what if I tell them to love Jesus, but I kind of sluggishly go about pursuing a relationship with him? Do you think the kid will leave the home and say, Daddy loves Jesus? No, probably say, Daddy loved golf. Daddy loved watching television by himself in his room. Mommy loved being on social media and purchasing things and You get the point, don't you? Paul knew that this kind of disconnect wouldn't form well-balanced disciples. 
Discipleship requires positive examples. One of the reasons that God the Father sent God the Son to the earth was to present us with a perfect example of what true manhood could look like, true humanity could look like. Paul himself understood that he was a model in his apostolic ministry. Imitate us. See how we lived. Did we ask for free handouts? Did we eat someone else's bread without contributing? We were exceptionally busy, and yet we put a lot of our energy into work too, because why? Because work's important. Because God values it. Because we don't want to see you not working. The reason Paul so strongly advocated for work is that when a person refuses to work, there are certain consequences that are involved. And we see these in verses 10 through 12. One of the consequences are the natural consequences of not working. Do you see that in verse 10 there? He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I think that's one of the reasons he says to keep away in verse 6 from the idol is uh, this idea that if the Thessalonians keep feeding people when they're not working, guess what you're doing? You're enabling them. It's important to notice, though, that Paul is very specific. He says, not willing. You see that in the text? Not willing. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are certain people who actually have legitimate needs and concerns. There are people who are unable to work. There are people who have been laid off from a job and they're proactively looking for a job. Uh, There are disabilities that occur. And in those instances, the Bible is clear. I am to take care of my brother or sister's need in that situation. And I'm to apply Jesus' golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What does that mean when a brother or sister struggling in Jesus? Well, it doesn't mean that I'm waiting until they fall off the cliff and into poverty to help them, right? I come alongside of them in their time of need. I, I meet them well in advance to strengthen them and bolster their situation. Because why? Because that's what I would want someone to do for me. I wouldn't want to have to go around begging for handouts. I would want to be helped. But here Paul's talking about The idol. There's natural consequences. Solomon explains the natural consequences of this behavior. He says this, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Why didn't she plow? She was too busy pursuing her cravings. She was too busy and preoccupied with her comfort and her immediate entertainment needs. And what is the consequence? She goes hungry when harvest comes. I want you to see this about a natural consequence. A natural consequence is a powerful tool to teach the fool to be wise. You got that? It's a powerful tool to teach the fool to be wise. So let me ask you a question. Are you too quick to remove natural consequences? Are you? Think about it with regard to raising a child. You have a child in the home. They're in their mid-20s. They have refused to work. They're playing video games. There's Cheetos all over their chest and their chair and everywhere, right? Am I helping or 
harming them by paying all the bills. I'm harming. That's what you've got to think about, isn't it? I think that we enable, I, I would have a tendency to want to enable one of my children because my mind would quickly go and say, I, what? Love them. I want to help them. I want to bring about good in their life. I want them to have every opportunity. But what happens is I get stuck in the moment with them and I don't project forward and think about the next five and ten years of their life. If I take care of that immediate need here, I'm harming them here. You understand? So natural consequences are a good thing and we should allow them to play out in the life of a child or in the life of a friend or in the life of a church member. Secondly, he shows us that there are spiritual consequences. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You've probably heard the expression that the devil makes work for idle hands to do. Uh, it was uh, the fourth century theologian, Jerome, who said this, Do something so that the devil may always find you busy. I found in my life, I tend to undergo spiritual lows when I have lots and lots of unoccupied time. How about you? How do you handle unoccupied time? One author says this. He's defined contemporary idleness as evenings without number obliterated by television, evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but listen on, on this one. A narcotic defense against time and duty. So the only way to break that kind of cycle, to get out of the cycle of having some other sin manifest because I'm not occupying my time, is to be proactive with your time. That's, that's the way that we combat that. What does that mean for us as a believer? You know what it means? It means today that if you have a lot of unoccupied time, you go home and you get out the calendar. What do you do with the calendar? You start occupying it. You start putting in positive things into your time and into your space. You think through those things. What kind of good can I produce by finding myself at this place and this time? See that? Thirdly, there are relational consequences. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He's insinuating here that this behavior is putting someone else out. That's the problem of idleness. Uh, husbands, when you feel no obligation to help around the house, Guess what you're doing? You're putting more work on your wife. What about our children? When our children, uh, if we raise them up and we tell our children, you don't have any obligations in the home, you don't have to help out at all, what does that do for them? Does it help them or hurt them? Hurt. Why? Two reasons. One, children are leaving the home nowadays without basic life skills. They don't know how to fill up a calendar. They don't know how to do their laundry. I remember I had a friend in college. He had a frozen pizza, and he was like, how do I turn on the oven? I'm serious. The other problem with that is that it teaches that person that the world revolves around them. 
I've got to tell you, it's a big, scary world out there, and the world don't revolve around you. And so we need to uh, make sure that we're teaching our children, that we are, as Christians, are being proactive with our time. And I think I want to challenge each one of us to consider that within the church as well. If I walk into the church and I feel unobligated to serve, I'm creating the same dynamic in the local church. Now as we move into those final verses, you may have thought earlier as I read the passage, wow, isn't Paul getting a little excessive here? He's telling us not to keep company with someone who's being idle. Well, let's read those verses again to jog our memory. Verses 13 through 15, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received constructive feedback? Constructive feedback, you know, most of us really loathe negative feedback, don't we? I mean, it doesn't matter how kindly it's delivered. Being told that you failed, that you didn't meet a standard, that there was an expectation or you're not doing something right, it really hurts the ego. It really does. I've found myself in that, in that place before. But criticism is an inevitable part of life, unless, of course, you're going to move up to Maine somewhere and be a hermit. Criticism is something that we should not try to avoid. Why? Because it is actually an incredible stimulus to our growth. When asked in the work world to describe a time when uh, someone has experienced the most growth in their job, uh, they didn't cite a bunch of instances of encouragement. Most people point to a time when a manager or a coworker, a mentor, or a customer presented them with constructive feedback. How about your life? When has there been a time where you've really blossomed and grown? It was probably because someone came alongside of you and challenged you a little bit. I gotta say this, if uh, I say to myself that I don't really care what other people have to say, I, I know me best and they don't have any right to say anything into my life, you're also saying at the same time, I don't wanna grow. I don't wanna grow. I've always found that even feedback from someone that doesn't like me, you had someone say something nasty to you before, even in that feedback, there can be a little kernel of truth that if I open myself up to the truth, what does the truth do? It produces growth in me. But let's be honest. We know this to be true, Yet many churches and Christians avoid correction, avoid spiritual discipline within the church like the plague. We don't want to do it. We don't want to engage in that. We don't want to be involved in other people's business. Basically, we see something that isn't godly, doesn't promote holiness, isn't healthy for our brother or sister in Christ. We stay silent. We don't say anything. And that's a problem. Why? Because the community can't grow if we conduct ourselves in that way. I look at it like this. If you're engaging in this kind of person-on-person ministry within the church, you're being real in community. The Bible calls this process of correcting one another church discipline. 
Uh, it's very important to hear this <laughs> as a process. I, I think often when we hear the word church discipline, we think of this singular event called excommunication, right? Well, that's uh, one of those words that we don't like to hear, so I'm going to say it again. Excommunication, just, just to make you feel a little more uneasy. Excommunication is the idea uh, where you have essentially excluded someone from participation in the church, participation in communion, because an un, there's an unwillingness, there's a hard-heartedness. But that is the last step in a series of a thousand steps that come before it in the process of church discipline. And, and church discipline should not start with the pastor coming to the person first. It's not the pastor's job. It's not the elder's job. It's the what? Church's job. You've got to look at Matthew 18 if you want to see that. And it should start with someone who knows the person really well, loves them deeply. If it begins with the pastor, it's like the person's going to the principal's office right away, right? <laughs> no one wants to go to the principal's office right away. I think there are several reasons churches avoid discipline. I think one reason is that discipline has been abused. When churches have the pastor as the disciplinary dynamic, the whole process breaks down because it's not meant to be uh, run by one person. It's not meant to be unilateral decisions from one lone individual. It's meant to be something where the body comes together and does it together. And I've heard horror stories. I've heard of leaders using discipline like a bludgeon, and that's not okay. But having said that, there are all kinds of things out there that if abused are not good for us, but if done correctly are good for us, like medicine, right? What if I use medicine the right way? It heals my body. What if I abuse the medicine? It kills the body. For example, um, oh, let's get off of that when I'm done with that. Let's go on to the next one. Discipline doesn't seem to work, right? We've heard stories or instances where someone's brought into a process of correction and they say, well, I don't want anything to do with what you're having to say right now, and they just walk on down the street to the next church and they gladly accept them into the room with open arms and open doors. So here's the deal with that, okay? I get that. I can see why you would say to yourself, well, what's the point in trying if that is the case? But we have to remember that discipline is always effective, but that's only if both parties participate in it, right? You can think of a discipline for our spiritual health being kind of like diet and exercise is for our physical health. Uh, diet and exercise are incredibly effective. If you eat well and if you work well, you will get a body like a Greek god, but oftentimes, I'm not faithful to the diet and I don't participate in the exercise. And then I say to myself, well, diet and exercise didn't work. But here's the deal. You didn't work. The diet and exercise works just fine. And uh, this is the pot calling the kettle black right now, okay, <laughs> by all means. The same is true with discipline. When, when it is conducted the right way, it is incredibly effective it uh, how is it effective? Because sometimes I get stuck in a state of hard-heartedness and I need someone to come from the outside and talk to me. 
And sometimes I get so stubborn that the first person comes and talks to me, and then I need two or three people to come and talk to me. Discipline is God using the community to help the hard-hearted. That's the purpose of it. I want you to consider three questions if you struggle with the idea of it. The first question is, do we really believe God's moral will is true if we say nothing when a fellow member is living outside of it? Second question, do we really love the person if we say nothing? I think oftentimes we avoid disciplined conversations more from a uh, disposition of self-preservation than a disposition of love. Self-preservation says, I am not going to say hard things to someone because I don't want that person to have negative blowback towards me. I'm going to protect me in this situation Love, on the other hand, says, I love this person so much, I'm willing to put the relationship on the line because I have their best interests in mind. Do you see the difference between the two? Third, do we really understand the purpose of discipline if we say nothing? Discipline is not about being harsh to people. Discipline is not about minimizing my sin and enlarging their sin. We need to read Matthew 7. First take the, what, speck out of your eyes before you remove the log out of your brother's eyes. Discipline has one singular purpose. Well, two, but one for the person. Reconciliation. Restoration. The other purpose is Jesus' name is so valuable and worthy and precious that we would never want to see it be defamed, right? Do you believe that? So we come alongside, we say, wake up, sometimes multiple of us. That's the purpose. Disciplines where God uses the community to help members who are hard-hearted. As we close down this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I want you to understand that everything about this life goes back to what do we know about God? What do you believe about him? What have you come to understand in the Bible is God's revealed moral will? I want to submit this to you. If God did not create us, if God's moral will is not true, if the Bible's not true, then nothing in life really matters. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you go about accomplishing the things that you accomplish. It doesn't matter how you die. But if God did create us, if he is the great moral lawgiver, if he's sovereign in control of all things and times and places and seasons, then everything matters. How you live matters. What you accomplish matters. How you go about accomplishing the things you accomplish matters. How you die matters. The Bible won't allow us to live in that compartmentalized house. God's concerned about every detail of your life. He wants to shine forth in your life. He wants to shine forth in the way that you talk to your wife. He wants to shine forth in the way that you handle alcohol. He wants to shine forth in those moments where you feel like bursting forth in anger. He wants to shine forth in those moments when you're driving down the road and you're talking to your child about Jesus. And he also wants to shine forth in your work. He wants to be in every aspect of your life. He wants us to do whatever we do to the glory of God. 
Maybe you're struggling in that. And maybe work is one of those places where you do. Well, let me suggest six steps that you can take to get back on track. Sometimes this is God's moral will and I find myself over here. And the first step that I take to get back over here is I seek God's forgiveness. The Bible calls it confession. Lord, I had a wrong view of work. I want to realign myself with your view of work. Secondly, I need to open my eyes to the opportunities. I need to start thinking creatively and proactively and using my first and best energy to apply myself to things that matter. Maybe you're older and you say to yourself, I don't have the energy like I did when I was 40. Well, that might be true. But there are still incredible good things that you can do in this world, maybe even better than what you were doing at 40. Third, set a goal. Be specific, right? This is not a goal. I want to save all puppy dogs throughout the world, <laughs> okay? And uh, why are you going after that? Who cares, right? I know some of you like puppy dogs, but better goals out there. For example, I am going to start growing in excellence in this at my job. That's a goal. You can grow in excellence in that way at your job for the glory of God. Fourthly, ask a friend to hold you accountable. Fifthly, ask God for his help. I gotta tell you, working for the glory of God requires God's help. You can't do it without him. Six, thank God. Here's what I'm really saying, friends. I want you to go home tonight. I want you to set your alarm clock for the morning, maybe even a little extra early so that you can kind of get up with a little pep in your step. And when that alarm glows off, I want you to have a moment where you worship God and you say to yourself, thank God it's Monday. And instead of whistling while you work, I want you to go to work and I want you to worship while you work. Will you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?